welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Bell-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Molly Ness, the creator of End Book Deserts, a campaign that advocates for children in high-poverty areas who lack basic access to age-appropriate books, high-quality reading materials, and book culture. Dr. Ness is an associate professor in childhood education at Fordham University's Graduate School of Education. After graduating from Johns Hopkins University, she began teaching in California with Teach for America. She then earned a PhD in reading education and a master's in English education from the University of Virginia. She served as director of the University of Virginia's McGuffey Reading Center. She has written four books and numerous articles in top-tiered educational journals and holds over 20 years of teaching and clinical reading experience. Welcome, Dr. Ness. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. So can you start by telling our listeners what a book desert is and why they matter for students' reading achievement? Sure. So the term book desert was coined in 2010 by Unite for Literacy and then really popularized in 2016 in some top tier research journals written mostly articles by um, Dr. Susan Newman. A book desert refers to a geographic area where access to books is limited. The definition was put into the International Literacy Association's glossary in 2020. So you can find more information about it there. Really what it refers to is under-resourced communities where kids have a hard time getting their hands on printed material outside of their school and, and often even have limited access to books within their school communities. And why they matter, well, I could, you know, go on and on about why they matter so much for reading achievement. We know that our goal as educators and as passionate readers ourselves is to help children become lifelong readers. And obviously, when kids have a hard time getting access to books, the chance that children will develop literacy skills that set them on a road for success coming into school is much more complicated. Kids lack access to print and to books in their home schools or communities. They are limited often in their background knowledge, in their vocabulary, in their socio-emotional skills that are um, a part of reading. And they come to school not armed with the literacy skills that will set them into a path of successful reading. We also know that as kids develop in age and grade level, the chances that they get their hands on books makes them more passionate about readers. So just access really is such a huge issue of equity and the likelihood that kids see themselves as readers. And I love the part about book culture, that people who love books, who talk books is such an appeal for everyone, I think, who's a reader and knowing that 
our kids don't have access to that. So I applaud the work of In Book Deserts. I am a big fan. How did you personally become committed to this cause? Well, I've always been uh, interested in issues of uh, of access and equity. Um, as a classroom teacher, I taught in Oakland, California, which um, was a very under-resourced community, and just always saw myself as doing work around social justice. And with a background in reading, I really equate literacy and access and equity together. Um, and I'm so, so glad that you actually picked up on that book culture, because I want us to start to think it's more than just access to actual books that makes kids readers. It's a, it's a culture and a conversation in a community of talking about books and of talking about reading and identifying our reading habits and our reading lives and our reading identities. And so as I've been doing work around this podcast, I've actually shifted a little bit more to feature not just places, organizations, and people who are getting books to kids, but also organizations that really try to harvest and culture and nurture kids as readers, be that having kids write themselves or bringing authors into classrooms, either virtually now because of COVID or um, in actual schools, um, because we know so much about the importance of seeing themselves as readers as a way to grow into reading identity. So it's much more than just distributing books. It's also that book culture. And I like that you talked about the writing part, because sometimes we underestimate that kids are writing outside of school and that they get joy out of being a writer. And so all of that is part of the culture of literacy. You remind me of my one of my favorite programs that I featured on the podcast, which is a DC, Washington, DC based organization called Reach Incorporated. And what they do is they take high school and uh, teenage volunteers and they train these teenage volunteers to be sort of a core of tutors and literacy partners for kindergartners and first graders. And they've found such a mutually beneficial relationship. The kids who are the older kids, the tutors and such often are struggling students themselves and have never seen themselves as writers and readers and really seen themselves as somebody who has a skill to give to a younger child. They've now worked with a publishing house and these teenage readers and writers have now published a whole slew of books that they work with these younger kids. And I just love the approach that this is within the community. This is tapping into the potential and power of, of teenagers to be really advocates um, in literacy at, at such a, a grassroots level. And I love that project. I have followed their work since they started, and I just think it's brilliant. And like you said, mutually beneficial for the kids who are on both ends of, of that project. Yeah, and easily replicated. I love the missions with this End Book Desert work is to connect people and programs who for so long have been working in these pockets of isolation or these sort of silos because there isn't a national organization that brings this group together. There isn't a sort of conference or a professional group that brings everyone together. And so people are not sort of saying like, hey, if you did that in Washington, D.C., we could do this in Los Angeles or Philadelphia or what have you. So some of the work with this End Book Deserts is to showcase all of these different programs and projects so that people can say, hey, if they did that there, we can do this in our community and sort of pick and choose from all these different adaptable ideas. 
That's exactly the reason that I started my podcast, because we didn't even know what was going on in the state of Alabama, much less across the U.S. So I know that this work is occurring throughout the country. What do you think is working well for communities where you see progress being made? Well, I've been totally impressed, first of all, by how adaptable people have been during COVID. We know that pre-COVID, 32 million kids lacked access to books in their homes, schools, and communities. So obviously, when schools and libraries shuttered, that number had to have gone up. There haven't been any studies that I know of or um, hard data around that, but just logically speaking. And what I've just been so impressed with is how people have risen to the challenge of meeting community needs where people are. So if that is bringing books to food banks where people too too much, unfortunately, these days have had to um, make a part of their weekly routines or laundromats or salons. I've just been so impressed by people realizing that to make this work happen, we have to recognize the needs of the community and meet the community where they are. So that work has just been so innovative and so creative. And I also think the work that really is making an impact is some of the work that's a little bit more difficult to do in terms of its longitudinal nature. So um, sometimes when I speak to people and I ask them about their impact, they tell me how many books they've distributed in X amount of months or years or what have you. And that work is so important. But if we really want to build kids as readers and make literacy a part of a fabric of the community, we also need to think through the longer term work, which is what are we going to do in a community to bring authors and to host reading events and stay within a community to give them the power and tools to build up their reading culture. So that that work often is, it's slower, it's harder to measure, but it's so important in terms of really making systemic change. That's an interesting thought about how you change the culture of communities. I am a culture fan, school culture, and so really thinking about community culture is an even bigger proposition. I know that you are a researcher. Do you have any evidence that this is making a difference for students' reading achievement? You know, it's one of the questions that I always ask of my guests on the podcast is how are you measuring your impact? And so many of these organizations have had to think through that. They are relying on grants and external funding, and all of these funding sources want a measure of impact. And so the easy way to measure impact is the quantifiable, how many books you've given out, how many people have come to your program, those sorts of things. I don't think yet we've really answered or really have clear measures on connecting projects and programs to student achievement. If we think about what we're using to measure, we're mostly using reading scores. And it's a long way. There are a lot of in-between points for us to say, I'm a book program or I'm a book bank and what I see in kids reading achievement eight months down the road or however long down the road is the measure of my impact. I'm just not comfortable with that yet because I think there are so many external factors and external influences. And I don't want us necessarily to measure in terms of student achievement because the work is so much more than just 
test scores. So I'm really interested in measures like how often home reading is happening, how often parents are coming to projects and programs, how often students are returning to public libraries and school libraries and, and survey data and those sorts of things. But it's something I wrestle with all the time is that we just don't really have measures that are comfortable for me and also show the importance of this work. That's a lot of thinking to try to correlate the impact of increased text and access to, like you said, the data for student achievement. And so I really like the idea of measuring how often, maybe even a pre and a post of how often were kids reading at home, those kinds of things. So those are some really good ideas if people are wanting to measure those impacts. What are your thoughts on how COVID has impacted existing book deserts? Uh, And I wonder if you think it's even made this work more important. So uh, absolutely. I think um, COVID has complicated, like most things in society, COVID has complicated them. I will say that for the first couple months of COVID, I sort of paused the podcast because like everybody else, I was overwhelmed and trying to figure out my life and my daughter's virtual schooling and all of that. And then about two months into it, I realized like, no, this is the real story. The real story is how people are continuing this work and being flexible and adaptable and using that word pivoting. That, But what I found is that the work went on in such innovative ways. Programs and places were doing mail deliveries. I have been continually amazed by teachers and programs going more door to door in their school communities and actually bringing books to kids. There have been places and programs that have aligned with food banks and doctor's offices. And and so the work has continued in ways that people have never had to sort of envision. And there's also been a real uptick in access to digital text as well because of COVID. And we're starting to sort of do some work around measuring how families are using digital text. What are the ways to support families in using digital text? Again, sort of another, I think so often we look at the challenges presented by COVID, but there also are some opportunities presented by COVID. And so this use of digital text has certainly become an opportunity that may not have existed pre-COVID. And that's very helpful for people to think about the bright side, the things that maybe are the silver lining in this cloud. I think that that's great. Many times people think of just our youngest children when we talk about getting books in kids' hands, but it's equally as important for our middle and high school. What have you seen with this aspect of ending book deserts? So absolutely, I'm, I, I always identify as a former middle school teacher. So that's the population that really speaks to me. We know that kids' reading habits and family reading habits typically tend to decline right around fourth grade. The scholastic report that people can access easily just by Googling it really shows a decline at age nine where families stop reading together as much as they usually do. And so we start to see that kids' reading habits sometimes plateau right around fourth grade. And in my opinion, that's the time that it's more important than ever to increase the quality of books 
increase choice of book, increase the genre and the variety and the relevance of books so that our middle school kids and our high school kids continue to be flooded with best quality text. And another point that I really want to make clear is that when we talk about book deserts, so often we think about populations or communities that have low socioeconomic status. And absolutely, that's some of the work. But I've also been really thoughtful and careful to reflect programs and people who are working to get books into the hands of populations and communities that may not be poor as measured by socioeconomic status, but are often under-resourced. For example, kids in the foster care system, programs that get books and allow video recording of parents reading aloud between a deployed parent and their child back home, between incarcerated parents and their children back home, because it's so important that all kids, regardless of their zip code, regardless of their family situation, have the experience of reading and and literacy. So it's not just a matter of getting books into our low socioeconomic communities, but really being thoughtful about whose voices are representative, whose voices are overlooked. One of my favorite programs, a lot of work done by National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, Jason Reynolds, looks at bringing books and bringing writing's life into juvenile justice systems for incarcerated young adults. Not necessarily a book desert as the true definition considers, but equally important work. Well, having grown up in rural Alabama, where there were was not a library outside of our school library, my salvation was the bookmobile. And mm-hmm. so the bookmobile was the most exciting thing that uh, happened in my world, especially before I started school, because I was able to have books and, you know, we, I had books, but then more books was always uh, better. And so I, I love that you've identified some of those places that it's easy for us to overlook where. And I will say that the, the bookmobile that you grow, grew up with has really become, people have been so engaging and so creative. There's um, a bicycle book brigade in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I went to grad school, where um, they've retrofitted bicycles, each bicycle to carry somewhere around 75 books. And they bike right into their students' communities in the summer and school vacations. They bring popsicles. They you know, have a whole parade around this. Um, one of my all-time favorite groups is a woman out in, I can't remember if it's Michigan or Wisconsin. And so I'm, I, I apologize to her, but the big rock and book bus, she is a school librarian who saw a dilapidated school bus that was about to be junked by her district. She asked the district to um, donate it to her. She had kids who were in vocational school learning mechanics and such helped to refurbish it. Local um, organizations donated a local carpenter, um, retrofitted cabinets for the inside of the bus. And she even got permission from Mo Willems to cover the outside of this bus with his amazing artwork and sort of 
piggybacking off of his The Pigeon Drives the Bus books. And this bus goes into communities all the time. It not only has books, but it also has meals. So this, this school librarian actually got her training to prepare meals because the district considers her now a food handler. So those book buses, those bookmobiles have really shifted and changed in Baltimore where I grew up, there is a book bus um, that is a part of the Maryland Book Bank that on the weekends, they take NFL football players from the Baltimore Ravens, and they go right into the neighborhoods. And just think about, I mean, think about your excitement when you saw the bookmobile growing up in rural Alabama. If you're a kid who's a young Black kid who loves sports, and you see this thing rolling down the street, and it's got your favorite NFL stars, like how engaging and how exciting is that for for that community as well. It would be mind-blowing for that to happen. Just a moment of confession. My school system, when I was um, early as a school administrator in a poor rural county here in Alabama, they actually let me convert a bus and into a library. And so I did I did that. I went out to the community during the summer and, and took popsicles and prizes. And it was so good for the kids because they got the books and we got to see them. But like you said, the culture of this matters enough for me to come and and do this. So really great. I love your just taking it on yourself. One of my pipe dreams, if anybody out there is listening and has gobs of funding that they want to send my way, I would appreciate it. I want to, particularly in rural areas that are libraries are limited or um, the geographic constraints of public transportation are limited. I really want to take shipping containers, which there are so many shipping containers all around, and refurbish them into movable libraries, particularly focus them on rural communities. So I'm, I'm waiting for my long lost uncle seven times removed who, you know, is very wealthy and I've never met, but he's going to somehow die and I'm going to inherit gobs of money and make this happen. But if there's anybody who is interested in funding that and making that happen, I, it would be a, a great thing to happen. I keep pinning all my hopes on the lottery. And so, you know, unfortunately, my chances of winning are a little less than getting struck by lightning. And so probably more likely than me having a uh, very wealthy great uncle seven times removed who is going to leave me all of his inheritance. Yes, probably so. Part of the focus of Book Deserts is eliminating the inequity that exists in our communities for students of poverty and of color. Are there any strategies that have been specifically effective in targeting those populations? Sure. Well, I can speak to some particular projects that different organizations have embraced. For example, Little Free Library, which so many of us know and recognize Little Free Library, their initiative that came um, as was, was sort of always there, but also really got a boost from the summer 2020 events, they have an initiative called um, Read in Color, and they are specifically working with publishing houses and authors to get more books that reflect students of poverty and of color into their little free libraries all over the country. So I think it's so important to bring that up as a point that it's not just about getting books into the hands of kids. It's getting the right book at the right time to the right reader so that we give kids books that are windows, sliding glasses, 
sliding glass doors, mirrors, and and are high quality. There's so many unbelievably fantastic books that are current and um, really reflective of our children. And so it's so important to make sure those are the ones that are going into book banks and book donation programs and little free libraries all over the country. I love it. Yeah. I know that you're a researcher and writer yourself. You've published books and continue uh, to write outside of ending book deserts. What are you seeing as holding the most promise for improving students reading right now? Yeah, well, this is something I think about a fair amount. I do a lot of work with teachers who are working with kids with dyslexia and language-based reading disorders. And so I'm super excited that there's been a real grassroots movement from parents pushing pushing schools and pushing universities and colleges and um, teacher education programs to be more cognizant of best practices with reading instruction. I'm really excited to see there is a lot of conversation just in general about best practices with reading instruction in general and how we are using structured literacy and training teachers and training pre-service teachers to understand the sciences of reading. I the, the term science of reading is, is so controversial. I always think of it as the sciences because there are so many components that go into this. But I really see that we are on the cusp of some great things happening, and I'm excited about that. I also and sort of see us at this crossroads of of this point in education where post-COVID, we have the opportunity to look behind us and see what we were doing, or we can embrace change and say, we've got this, we've been through this year that has been enormous transition and enormously challenging, but are we going to use this as an opportunity to shake up the status quo and move in a different direction Or are we going to go back to what we were doing? And so I'm hopeful that there will be some changes and progress that has, again, been that silver lining post-COVID. I agree. And just thinking about what you were saying with both the grassroots movement with parents and communities demanding more and demanding better, I do think post-COVID we are given this opportunity to move forward in a better way because what we were doing was not necessarily the best way to begin with. And so with the loss and the slide that may occur for kids because of COVID, we've definitely got to to do better. Molly, thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you're doing for children. Well, thank you. And I do want to extend an invitation to your listeners and to your network um, to join us for a free two-day virtual event in August 2021. There is more information at endbookdeserts.com. We are bringing together for um, the first time ever people who are doing this work around literacy, access, and equity all over the country for a virtual two-day event. The hope is that there will be conversations that lead to change, that there is power in numbers, and that um, everyone can learn from all of these people who are doing such important work. So we're going to kick off with a conversation by Susan Newman, who has done the research around book access. We will be hearing from Little Free Library and First Book and some of my favorite book banks all over the country. We will have everybody from individual teachers to big organizations 
organizations and registration is open. It is free. You can pick and choose which sessions may are um, relevant to you and make the schedule work for you. Um, so again, for more information, um, check out nbookdeserts.com and the date is August 8th and 9th. Well, I'm already registered for it. And so I will uh, put that on our, our Twitter um, page as well and, and send that out when we send this. And so uh, I'm hoping that this is going to begin some work uh, in Alabama and continue some work for access, but then also uh, really focusing on the culture uh, as well. So uh, appreciate uh, you and uh, the work so very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate your work and the invitation. And I will look forward to continuing the conversation and seeing what um, good things come out of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.